0: Welcome to Popcorn Talk, featuring movie discussions, news, and interviews, presenting The Film Scene with Ileana Douglas. Ileana is an actress, writer, author, and film historian with a need to discuss movies that borders on obsession. You'll learn the history of movies one great story at a time. The Film Scene is the deep cuts of movie podcasts, featuring movies we love by the people who made them. And now, Ileana Douglas.
1: Hello, hi, it's Ileana Douglas, and welcome to the film scene. Well, hello, Ryan. How are you? Long time no see. Ryan, I called you Ryan. That shows how much I'm out of practice. Well, you Please. can also say hi to
2: Ryan, our esteemed producers. Uh, I
1: think I'm missing Ryan. Hello, Jeff. <laughs> yeah.
0: I am here as well. Um, how are we doing, y'all? <laughs>
2: Good. Ilion, it's appropriate that you shouted out Ryan first, because as you all will uh, soon find out, we have the daughter of the man who greenlit Star Wars, Alan Ladd, and of course his daughter, Amanda Ladd-Jones, who's joining us later. And I can say pretty confidently, at least in person, I don't know anyone who loves Star Wars more than Ryan.
0: Jeff, that's so wow. kind of you to say. I, uh, yeah. I, I do Star Wars news right after this show, actually. So it's, it's a big day. We're, we're returning as well. Um, but we're so happy to have the film scene back.
1: Yeah. yeah, I know. I've i missed you guys, and I've been watching tons of movies, but I can't remember half of them. <laughs> uh, but at least I'm writing them all down. But I'm just, I've just been writing, so uh, that I, I'm on a roll doing that, but I have not seen very many people. Um, the only thing that I, we were talking about in the news was this idea that AMC is going to open up their movie theaters and go back. I don't know, I, I don't think. Think I'm going to do it. Plus, I don't think anybody would go with me. Uh, how do you feel? Hi, guy.
0: I mean, so it's an interesting topic. Uh, I actually went to my first ever drive in um, a few weeks back, which okay. I know that's, <laughs> I've never been to one before, okay. but I think that's a great option. I hope that that kind of uh, comes back in popularity and maybe there's a way for certain theaters that are in existence right now to use like their back parking lot as a drive in or something. Mm-hmm. But um I, we were talking a little bit before the show, Jeff mentioned he doesn't feel comfortable going to one until maybe twenty twenty one. I don't think I do either. I think the big thing that's up in the air right now, since Tenet announced that they was they were moving, the whole verbiage and discussion around the movie theaters coming back has been like, oh, Tenet's gonna bring back the movies and now I think it's looked at as which studio is gonna do it first and when something bad happens Who is going to get the brunt of the blame is it going to be the theaters is it going to be the studios that chose to have their movie come out is it going to be both or neither i don't know and this whole idea that like a mask is optional or is it required there's a lot going on
1: with that i think it's got to be one or the other it's got to be required but then but then they they're going to take off their mask to eat popcorn so isn't the whole
0: (laughs) that's a great point (laughs)
1: Nobody really has any rules. It's all like a Twilight Zone. That's why I say I'm kind of, the worst thing would be to go and then be sitting there and say, yeah, this is a mistake, and then get up and leave. Um, And there's a lot of places that are, you know, that are like, that are like that now, that where you go, I know some businesses that are open and, and I I, the worst thing that could possibly be is you go to the restaurant, you sit down and then you suddenly think, eh, I don't think I want to do this and leave, you know? Yeah.
2: Ryan, you mentioned Tenet for listeners who may not know, that's Christopher Nolan's new movie starring um, Denzel Washington's son, I believe um, John David Washington, but um, you know, Christopher Nolan, he's known as a blockbuster director. He drives a ton of Warner brothers box office receipts are, am I right in saying that they're planning on releasing theatrically on July 31st?
0: Yes. That, so they only delayed two weeks when I said it got pushed. But they were, the whole attitude towards Tenet coming out has been, oh, they're, it's going to be the one to bring back the movies. And now like even they are getting a little bit of cold feet saying, like, we're not ready yet. And there's just a lot right. of misinformation going on. I, I think as someone, I wouldn't go. But the argument being had is I think the movie theater is an environment that you can control a lot of whether it's like select seating or limited seating it's just you're going to need to drive up the price of tickets and is it worth it is it worth the risk is it worth ha- like having people work at a theater where you're only going to have a quarter of the well. guests come in
1: you know my fear is that you know it's like people texting as i said what if you're sitting there and then the person next to you pulls down his mask and he's talking to someone and what do you what do you do you get up and complain about the person do you need you let it go and then later you get sick and you regret it so it's i'm more concerned about human nature than yeah. the You could have the safest thing in the world, but if people don't practice and that's the thing that concerns me the most. And it's unfortunate. It's like if it was a group of of us friends and we all trusted each other. But it's what I'm what concerns me is just the person that is just going to the one person that gets everybody sick because they didn't follow the rules. You know,
0: could could you think they're going to they would require masks or maybe hand out ones like 3D glasses now? Oh that's another idea of where yeah, you could bring your own, but if
2: you don't have one, like you have to buy this in order to enter. Knowing Warners, they'll probably do like tenant themed promotional masks that you can wear with hashtag tenant right across yeah. the phone. I feel like that's such a Warner's move. <laughs> Definitely. Now
1: I have a friend, I won't mention who, um, but she's an older actress. She's in her sixties, and she was cast in a television show. And they are really pushing to do this show. They would wow. be shooting in Atlanta. And she was asking me, you know, what I thought. And, you know, I said, I feel like it's a really bad idea. I mean, it's a really bad, she's right in the core group. She's going to get on an airplane. She's going to go down there. And it's the same, I used the same argument with her. I said, what if you're down there? you've already signed the contract, you're on the set, and suddenly you don't feel safe. Yeah. I said, you can't leave because you would be sued. So once you're there, and you know, I use the example, having been in show business for so many years, how many times in, I've done things that are incredibly dangerous, where they said, oh, we're going to have a safety person, and in the end, they really don't. You kind of do it on your, you know, now I, granted, I, I'm sure that people are going to be as safe as possible, but again, human nature, you know, once you're there and once you've committed to being on the movie or the TV show, you can't suddenly quit and that's the thing. So she may regret it once she's there. So. I'll I'll let you know if she ends up doing it. She's 50-50. And of course, they keep raising the price because they want her to, you know, and I said, yeah, because they want to they prove, you know, which is the other thing that I don't think is particularly fair. If you can get a group, if you can get five actors to go to a set, then you're going to say, see, these five actors went and they didn't get sick. So to entice other people back to work. So... Yeah. question, Brianna, on that. I, you can keep this vague
2: if you want, but do you know if the show is network, streaming, or cable? I'm just kind of curious.
1: It's, uh, I believe it's a network show. A network show. I know the networks are especially,
2: you know, ads, advertising is their backbone. It's not like they're a subscription model, so the, the big five are really pushing their shows to get back in production, but it just, I don't know, it just, it just feels soon.
1: Yes, and I have another friend who was an actress also who was part of the soap opera that got up back up wanted to go back up and work and again they weren't forcing people back to work uh and she didn't want to go back to work and then sure enough the the soap opera was they were only kind of up and running one day yeah. and then they shut down again um because of the whole testing thing which again they haven't quite got that I said to my act, my actress friend said, well, you know, you're going to get to sad, and someone's going to take your temperature. And I said, so let me get this straight. Your whole life, you've gone to doctors and you've trusted doctors, <laughs> but now in the twilight, in your twilight years, you're going to, so you're going to go to Atlanta in a complete strain, you're going to put your health in a, in a complete stranger's hand. So that's the thing that's a little, but, but I said to her, listen, if you want to be the brave one and go out and test it for the rest of us, more power to you. But I don't think that I could do it, you know, unless it was an extraordinary amount of money. Right.
0: Yeah, there's just so much risk and it, it kind of goes, it's, it's unfortunate. We've taken all these a few weeks off um, and I feel like it's a similar conversation we're having where we just don't know all the facts quite yet, but we do know it's dangerous.
1: Here's my thought. My final thought is that with all of these things, we're all talking hypothetically about it and shouldn't like a movie theater do a test run? Like again, with employees, you know, like we do emergency, we practice emergencies. I feel like all of these things should be practiced for a couple days and see where the problems are right. before you announce, and then say, "Oh, we're not ready," you know. But it doesn't seem like anybody's doing that.
3: No. You know,
0: right? They're announcing it like it's a brand open. They're like, it's like opening a movie. Like, July
1: like 15th. Hey, it's all over. So, but that, I, I don't understand. Like, it wouldn't be that much money to to try out to test some of these things. Um, these but are the questions. You know
2: what, you could cook it into focus grouping. So it's the thing where you could get the volunteers to also focus group the movie and focus group the virus, right?
1: Yes, totally. <laughs> totally. All, you, you, all the young people, all the guys that are going around shirtless jogging, they yeah. can go in and they can, they can do all the testing for us.
2: Ileana and I live in West Hollywood, so a lot of shirtless joggers in our area. <laughs>
1: Yeah, what's going on between that and the fireworks? Are you getting the fireworks? Oh yeah. <laughs> what's the conspiracy theory with all the fireworks?
2: Pride month? I don't know.
1: <laughs> At one o'clock in the morning, it's like it's as soon as it's quiet. There was a guy on. Do you know that app called Next? No. Oh, next. It's like ne- you know, next door. It's a neighborhood app where you find out. You have to join it. You can see what your neighbors are doing, mainly it's a forum for complaining about things. And uh, so there's massive complaints about the fireworks. And then when one guy wrote anonymously that he was the person that was doing the fire, <laughs> just to irritate everybody. Nice. Oh, this is America. This is America. Well, let's get Amanda on here. And talk about this documentary. We had- have Joe joining
2: too. So as we mentioned at the top, we have uh Amanda Amanda Ladd-Jones and Joe Amoday joining us. Amanda directed the film, Joe produced the film, and of course we're here to talk about one of Hollywood's most important and prolific producers, Alan Ladd Jr. Ileana, I'll let you take it from here.
1: Uh, well, welcome you guys. Uh, Amanda, pl- pleasure to meet you. And uh, I enjoyed this documentary so much. I, I, I met your dad only once. He's such a, he's such a Mr. Cool.
3: <laughs> yeah.
1: He's just like a Mr. Cool guy, but it was at the Savannah Film Festival. They gave him an award, and he was down there, and I I snuck a picture of him because he he was standing right outside the lobby, you know, smoking a cigarette, and man, he looked so much like his dad. Uh, I had to get the picture, so I surreptitiously took a great shot of him, but uh, he he cuts a handsome figure, you know. He's a very, very dashing, very interesting uh, fellow. Um, but I guess the, you know, what? Why did you want to make a, a documentary about your dad? And um, was it difficult to convince him to be a part of it?
3: Um, well, I, um, in answer to the why I made it, I made it because. Um, I started as I got older, obviously, you know, I knew what my dad did growing up to a certain extent, as much as a kid knows what their parent does. So, um, but really more than anything, I just knew he was not around very much. He was very busy. And so then as I, I got older and started hearing stories, I worked in the film business myself. And so I would meet people on jobs that I was working on and they would tell me these stories and, you know, I think that coincided with that kind of natural point in most people's life where you start to transition to seeing your parents as adults, and you know, um, and so I realized that there was so little I actually knew about what he did. You know, I obviously knew the Star Wars stuff, and mm-hmm. and certain things I knew because he was out of town working on this movie, or he was, you know, doing this whatever, previewing this movie. But um, I didn't really appreciate sort of what that meant, you know, until until obviously I got older. And um, also my dad being kind of a, you know, humble and quiet guy, he never ever told stories about things that he did. So that was one of the really amazing things that I got out of making this documentary and was kind of. Um, the beginning of the inspiration for making the documentary is that I I heard stories from people of things that he did that were really admirable. Mm-hmm. Um, for instance, one of the very first stories I heard that just stuck in my mind was when I met Lucy Fisher or I'd seen Lucy Fisher at some event or some something and she was talking with me about working at Fox and she said you know you know, as a woman, that was where you wanted to work. You know, Fox was the studio to work for. You know, everyone else, they were only hiring women as secretaries. But, you know, if you could get over there, you knew you would be respected and your opinion would be valued. And I, at that point, was beginning, you know, to get into my own, you know, sort of professional life and and realized how rare <laughs> that was for a woman to be valued and have her opinion be listened to and things like that. So I, that really stuck with me. And, um, then I kind of started connecting dots and realizing like, Oh, Alan Stewart, like I, you know, I never really thought about how unusual it was for my dad to employ as many women as he did, you know, because they were just always at his office. Or if we, if I joined him, like on a trip to go, to preview a movie, there were lots of women around and they were in positions of power. And so I just took for granted that, um, that that was the way it was. So then I obviously realized that was a little bit less. And then there were other little things as I went along, you know, people telling me about how he fought for their movie. You know, obviously I'd heard the Star Wars stories, um, you know, and uh, but then also. Funny enough, like things I, you know, met a a guy who was working at a production office that was in this building, and the guy that was working security there said, oh, I know your dad. I I used to be on the security desk at, at the Pathé building, and he said, and you know, he was so great. The very first day they moved into the building, he learned my name, and every day from that day on, he said good morning to me, addressed me by my name, asked me about my kids, you know, so stories like that. I really, you know, came to... It. And then I just thought, well, let me figure it all out and, you know, get it and all on
1: record. What was his reaction when you said you were going to do the, the a documentary? Well, he, he was always supportive of it. I was pretty um, careful
3: about what I told him because mm-hmm. I really wasn't sure how it would go. I mean, I didn't, you know, I didn't... I didn't want him to know too much about who I was who was participating, who wasn't participating, who I was asking. You know, I don't think I really appreciated just how respected, I mean, I'm embarrassed to say, but that he was. There was a small part of me, I think, that wondered if people would say yes less about him, but more because it was me and why would they participate? Uh But that really was testament to who he was to all these people because they all agreed. Um, And so he, of course, was was flattered, of course. Um, but like I said, I kept a lot from him, just you know, by, by design. But um, he is really proud of it now. That I, I definitely, I definitely know. I think that, again, he would never talk about being glad that it was done. But I think he, there's a part of him that probably feels very proud that it's out there. I mean, you know, that it's on the record. I don't oh, know. Yeah.
1: No, I mean people should know about all of his amazing films, which we'll get to. Hey, Joe, what was your involvement in the uh, in the film?
4: I'm selling the film, and uh, Amanda and I met a couple years ago, I guess. And yeah, you know, being someone who grew up loving loving films and being a you know a, a geek since I was a kid, um, you know, I, I and then also being into business, you know, you always have to watch out that your love of film doesn't, you know, intrude into your business decisions. But we met and, you know, I I knew who Alan Ladd Jr. was because I'm a film buff. But I realized quite quickly that a lot of people out there don't know who he is. And, you know, if you know a lot about films, you know, there's been some great film producers and guys, you know, all the guys that ran the studios, they made, you know, the most incredible films uh, in the history of films, but nobody liked those men. There were you know, the stories that you hear about Harry Cohn and and, and and Mayer and all these guys, most of them aren't good stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and then all of a sudden I start, you know, to, to read up on Alan Ladd Jr. And as the manager said, everybody loved the guy. Mm-hmm. And then you start thinking and then you look at the list of titles that if it wasn't for him, these movies don't exist. Forget about Harvey Weinstein. This guy is is I mean, it's it's not it's hit after hit after hit movies that we will remember forever. So my job now is to get this film available to as many people as possible, because I want people to know who he is. Um, I want people to know that, you know, Alan Ladd had a son that he kind of forgot about. Uh, And we all like Alan Ladd, we all love Shane, you know, but um, there's a story here about his son that is so important and how he overcame those difficulties and still stayed in that same business and you know was responsible for you know some of the most iconic films in the past fifty years. I, I just find the story in, incredible, and the only way the only way people are going to find out about it is, is, is if is if they watch the film, um, and then and then they'll learn that there you can make movies and be a good person. It it.
1: Well, yeah. When I, I grew up. <laughs> <laughs> when I watching movies in the you know 70s and then into the 80s you know I, I, I you, the instantly recognizable uh, tree logo
3: uh-huh. yeah. on,
1: on yeah. one of his movies always meant which you talk about in the movie it always meant it was going to be a, a, a good movie if it had the tree you know and you
3: the, know you're not the only I've heard I honestly that is a line that Uh, probably I've heard maybe three or four times people have said exactly that to me like they said to me when I saw the tree I knew it was going to be a good movie and that's so I I mean that that I, I used to say to people like oh you know, my daddy. He's a movie producer, and they would say, "Well, you know, what is he? Da- what's his name?" And I'm not junior, and they be like, mm-hmm, "I don't know." And then I'd say, "You know, the tree," and I do like the you know thing. And they were like, "Oh yeah, 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 the tree. I know the t- of course." And then they'd start listing, "Well, Blade Runner, Police Academy," you know, they'd start listing them off. I was like, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah that guy. <laughs> well, Let's talk about some of the the uh, the movies that he he did. Uh, my God, just. I mean, I, 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 we're, we're going to get to Star Wars, of course, and and uh, one of our producers, Ryan, is going to poke his head in because he's doing a Star a Star Wars show right after the, our That's show. Right. Right. Yeah, <laughs> right. yeah. he's that. the number one Star Wars fan. So, um, right. but so 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 discuss some of the movies that he uh, that he was a part of.
3: Um. So. One of the things that I found was really great um, was that uh, my dad made a lot of like very bold films and a lot of these sort of kind of feminist films, um, you know, which that was something that I enjoyed while I was making this film is is taking a look at sort of, you know, that it's very often like someone will get pegged as the the action producer or the horror producer or the, you know, rom-com producer. And he really, even though he made some of the most iconic science fiction films, I would never call him a science fiction producer. You know, he also made some of the most iconic feminist films. I wouldn't, you know, really call him this, you know, woman's film producer either. And, um, you know, what he used to always say is just that what he, wanted was just a good story and he liked, all, he, he liked all different kinds of movies so I think that that influenced a lot of his choices which is why I think his um, filmography is such a varied list of, of things um, and I actually think a lot of what um, influenced the, the films he you know he worked on or greenlit was the fact that he was such a film lover. Mm-hmm. so he saw every movie of every kind and he loved them all and so that's why i think he was able to really um you know read a script and kind of you know get it even if it wasn't something that he you know had produced a, a genre he produced before or whatever um so obviously like you know i really love and obviously I learned more about these things when I'm the documentary, but I love a lot of his early films. I absolutely love Alien. I think it's such a fantastic um, film. And I didn't know that he, it was his idea to make Ripley a woman. I had no idea, wow. not while I was making the
1: documentary. No, I didn't either. That I learned that from the, in the doc by watching the documentary. Yeah, like,
3: I had no idea. Thank goodness I learned it actually before I finished the documentary. Because there's been a few things that I've learned after I finished the documentary that I was like, oh, I wish I knew that. I wouldn't like what? Me. Like what? Are you well, for like instance, I learned that he was the um, that Usain Policy was the first Black woman to direct a major studio film, and that was a dry right season. It was my dad who greenlit it at MGM. And I found that because I had a Google alert on my dad and this interview with Usain Palsy came up and it was talking about being a woman and being a black woman and the way that she got this movie made and that she had full support from the studio. And I'm reading and it's Alan Ludd Jr. I was like, oh my gosh, you know? And so there was that story that thankfully, I mean, I know now, I'm glad I know it, but I didn't learn in
1: time to include. He, um you also go into—he uh, uh, started out as an agent, and he represented some amazing people. My God, Judy Garland, and all, all those photographs in the movie. Robert Redford, Dick Donner. It, uh, it must have been an—it looked like from the pictures just an incredibly glamorous time. Thank God you had a. Did you? Did he have all those pictures that you? Um. You he had quite a few actually, he had quite a few, but I got um, I got a lot of them
3: from the archives, the 20th Century Fox archives, they were really generous and let me get into their um, archives. So that was really kind of, so all those really like, you know, stills were from then. Um, but then my dad had quite a few. And the amazing thing is that I did this movie, like I funded it with the Kickstarter campaign and like a lot of creative, you know, things. But the fantastic thing about it is that I fair used all the you know a lot of the images. And the great thing is the 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 rules are that it has to pertain to the story. anyway, because he made so many movies, there were so many things that fell within the parameters of so there were a lot of images and you know, film clips that that were part of the story that made sense and were fell with under that fair use, right. So a lot of the fantastic, um, you know, photos and some of that stuff I just got because he worked on cool stuff. And <laughs> like, it's really just because of him. <laughs> yeah, I
4: always wanted to ask you, is it, you know, you look, you, you just mentioned, you, you go from the omen to making an unmarried woman. I mean, in the same two or three years, yeah. was it, is it his taste? Is that what it was? Or did yeah, he just I think so. Learn?
3: Like I said, I think because he was such a film fan that he just loved a good story, you know? Um, And then I really think that a lot of his, um, you know, gift or what is that he really, um, he didn't try to do people's jobs for them. So I think like he found material, you know, and, you know, I think I'm almost 100% positive that an unmarried woman came to him from Paul Mazursky and my dad had a relationship with Paul and trusted him and that was the thing you know I mean it's funny because my dad talks about like oh yeah he just called me up and he said I got this idea and blah blah and I said great let's do it like as if that's normal I was like right dad okay well that's how it worked in your world but I think the beauty of that is that these you know so many of them have this relationship and they continue to work with each other Mm -hmm. and I think that um enabled him to feel confident in in who he was hiring. And then that enabled them to do a good job because they weren't being micromanaged by somebody who wasn't, you know.
1: You know, one thing that's interesting to me is you mentioned Paul Mazursky and I I knew Paul quite well. And he would always, he would have lunch. We'd say, I'm going off to lunch with Laddie, me and Mel Brooks, you know, so. Wow. Sounds like he wasn't just a person who greenlit movies. He stayed friends with all oh, yeah. the creative people. Oh, yeah. I, you know, I think that's what sets him apart. Um, also, um, I've never heard of anyone wanting to have lunch. You said that at the beginning, you know, <laughs> or lunch with a, a studio executive, you know, <laughs> so fondly to somebody, you know?
3: yeah. I know they would still be having lunch. Well, I mean, sadly, not Paul, but Mel and those who are still living, they still do have lunch. It's just been quarantined. They, they, awesome. that, that's the only thing that has, has you know, put a, put a halt on their lunch plans. I know, but they know they still, and they love it. They go Friday and, you know, it's Mel's lunch, but they, you know, it's nice. It's, it's um, yeah, <laughs> they're good friends. It's
1: like a coffee clutch. I know I like I love that um so then his next incarnation was was working in London with which I never even knew this existed uh London International just sounds so mod uh with Michael Caine and again you've got these great photos of the movie Michael Caine and Julie Christie and Oh my God, it just looks so fabulous, but that's where, so what was his experience like working over there? Did he mention any difference between the London? I mean, that's really when London was the sort of the center of the universe in those days.
3: Yeah, you know they talk about it a lot. Um, I I grew up here, but my sisters who are older than me, they were they had quite a few years of their childhood there, and like um, Dick Donner, who my dad is still really close with, and was really close with throughout my whole childhood. He lived over there at that same time, and Jay Cantor was over there at that same time, and they had all these friends, and they loved it. You know, it was this group of you know, I think young like filmmakers and expats and they were having this great time and, you know, had this whole international community of friends and, and, you know, collaborators. Um, He really loved it. And they all talk about it the same way. Like Dick talks about it, he tells the stories I mean, it's funny because only, you know, there's snippets of the conversation in the documentary, but we used to, I used to laugh with the editor about like, they're always like on the Fulham Road and the King's Road, but they all go off on these like tangents to talk about this, you know, time and reminisce and it was like, we're like, oh, here we go with a London story again. So I think there's a part of all of them that, you know, their heart is still there when they were young and, and all of that. Um, and my mom actually didn't want to come back to the stage. She would have been happy to stay there. Like my dad sort of jokes about it, that like he came and he took the job at Fox and he called my mom, bring that baby and get over here. My mom was like, yeah, <laughs> it was pretty intense. But she, you know, besides having to pack everything up, she loved living there too. So um, I think it was fun times for all.
1: So then that's the next incarnation is he leaves London and then he takes over Fox. And then you talked a little bit about that at the beginning, the atmosphere there uh, of creativity. I love, there's a great story in the movie about the success, I didn't know this, of the success of Rocky Horror Picture Show. Uh, came out of that third floor office. I pl- tell that story, that is an incredible story.
3: Well, that's another, so that's a great story that I, um, again, learned in the process of this, but another sort of testament to my dad not feeling like he has to be the, you know, guy making all the decisions. This it, the, the movie had been made and it had not done well. It had, had a release that was not good. And um, so a guy in the marketing department, a younger, lower level marketing guy named Tim Deegan, you know, he was a younger guy and he used to go to midnight shows and he had this idea like this would be a great movie for the midnight show. Let's try it out. And my dad said, yeah, okay, give it a, give it a go. And so it's really in many ways, Tim Deegan, who's the person who did that. But the, the fact that my dad saw that you know saw the value in this young man's idea and said hey you know give it a shot and it's still going well maybe not now quarantine times but you know until prior to that you know was still going this 36 seven years later um and so i think that you know again um he's i don't know if my dad says it in the movie but he always used to say like you know, hey, a good idea is a good, a good idea, you know, I'm open to it wherever it comes from. And I think a lot of people say that, but they don't mean it,
1: mm-hmm. always. Well, it, it, I mean, what I got out of the film was just how glorious it must have been to have a creative group of people and that things weren't being made by committee. Yeah. You know? And uh, when you have a boss that fills you with confidence that you have a creative idea, you know, and you can run with it. Um, And you get these great little side movies like that, that that otherwise wouldn't, you know, wouldn't see the light of day. Or again, something gets stuck in committee and everybody has a say in it and, you know, and you don't get get to see it anyway. It just sounded like a really fun, uh, plus that lot is so, it just sounded like that's Yeah, I used to like
3: visiting that lot, was a fun lot to visit.
1: Um, and Mel Brooks was, uh, he, you said he was on the third floor. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where he picked. Uh, but I know Mel Brooks was there for many years. That was yeah. Again, a great.
3: Well, that was the thing. He, my dad, his office was on the first floor and he took everybody and put them all up on the third floor. Cause he felt like all the creatives, because he felt <laughs> like that would be such a great environment. And again, I think that's such a rare quality, you know, unfortunately, because I think that oftentimes, you know, as you talk about by committee, these committees, and sometimes they're a committee of one, but they think they can do their, the job better than the creative people. And that's just, not often the case you know and um so i think my dad really you know recognized that like you know i'm not he always would say like i'm not i'm not the creative one you know i'm just the he's like the enabler like you know he just he's you know i gave him the go ahead i just help him you know realize their their vision but I think that a lot of them actually would tell you different, Mel Brooks being one of them. You know, he said to me, like, I always show Laddie my first cut of things because I know he'll be honest with me. And he's not afraid to say to me, you know, you already said that, like, we we know that don't, we don't need to see it again, you know, and he'll tell me honestly, Mm -hmm. you know, which I think for, you know, these guys, it's, you know, there probably are, is a, you know, not a giant list of people whose notes they value. <laughs> Maybe not, you know. And so the fact that kind of unequivocally they 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 say, you know, yeah, if he's if we want to hear it, you know, we really want to hear what he has to say. Um, I think they feel safe that what he's coming from is a place of genuine um uh support. And you know, um
1: and um I know, Joe, you were saying about you're talking about his father, the actor Alan Ladd and saying that they had a distant uh, relationship, which is explored in the movie. And And um, Amanda, was that like a tough subject to go uh, into in the documentary about how much I mean, obviously, because his name is Alan Ladd Jr. That's the whole, you know. It's that's the whole Megillah kind of, you know? yeah. Um, but was that something you were hesitant to, you know, to go near to talk about?
3: Um, yes, yes, and and no, I definitely felt very aware of. Well, when I grew up,
1: he was um, also your grandfather, you know, yeah,
3: exactly. And when I grew up, like, we, you know. There was obviously no TMZ and all that stuff. So actors' lives were very private and they were very, they're crafted, well-crafted, you know, um, the, the sort of what people thought was a public perception of it. And I don't ever remember being told or anything like that, but I did definitely grow up with this very strong impression of the fact that I was not to talk about my family ever, anywhere, nothing, like it wasn't to be discussed. So that came with it like a, a, you know, level of, I don't know, secrecy and sort of like, I don't know, shame, but this feeling of like, no, we can't let anyone see. So I, I kind of, so, and, and I didn't actually know very much about my grandfather at all. My dad never, ever spoke with him, never. And I, and he died before I was born, but my sisters who are older than me, they were babies when he was born in a toddler. So they, they didn't know him either, but, um, You know, he never spoke about him. There were no photographs of him, really. And I I don't know that it was so intentional, but they didn't have this loving relationship. And so I guess my dad didn't really, you know, feel compelled to put these photos of him and his dad. Um, But I also think, you know, unfortunately, what my dad goes into and in the movie, and and this was something that I knew I had to, um, I had to deal with it because... It completely informed everything of who my dad was because he 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 had the moniker of this man who re, who in many ways rejected him and so how do you you know it's hard enough to get under the shadow of your your parent or you know and that's a difficult thing for everybody I think I I am have I mean I found it difficult in my own life and I'm not the same gender I think it's even more difficult if you're you know the same gender. But the same name, you know, I like I definitely felt the burden of my name and I felt uncomfortable whenever somebody was able to make the connection of who I was and, you know, who I was related to. So for him, I think, you know, there was that burden of that of the legacy. But in addition to it, just the the, the pain of, of the human pain of being rejected by your parents, you know. Um, and so I knew I was going to have to tread on that. Also, my uncle, um, who I think you know, he said you he, guys admit yeah, he, yeah. Okay. my uncle David That's had a totally right. different relationship with,
1: with his dad. Which is covered also in the film, is that the, the awkwardness that he's the first child and he's named Alan Ladd Jr. Um, but then he has this, you know, a second family that he's much closer to. So all the mistakes he made the first time around you know, the second family gets the benefit of more more time with him and is more, he's exactly. more confident and, that, and they're half-brothers, you know, um, mm-hmm. and David looks up to him, so that's complicated too. Absolutely, Didn't and you know? I know
3: that that was, and I, a lot of what kind of gave me, I don't know, the roadmap for what I would say was my interview with David because mm-hmm. I was surprised at how honest and candid, David was. You know, I thought, and I said to him before he sat down, I was like, "Don't worry, you know, Wilk, we'll, we're not. You can say speak freely. We'll cut, you know, stuff." And then I ended up including a lot of what he talked about, and he was okay with it. I think our family has maybe come far enough in it, um, and so then that, you know, in a way, I I think I haven't actually asked him this, but I think in some ways that was a was. know a healing for david because i david is such a lovely wonderful person and he loved his father and he loved his brother and he was in the middle of this you know he was the golden child and his brother who he you know looked up to and adored was the black sheep and i think that david always wanted to keep some kind of harmony and you know have a foot in both and be able to enjoy both relationships and i think that was you know yeah. often difficult um so when he kind of went into a little bit more of my my grandfather's flaws um depression and alcoholism being one of them it opened a little bit more of of the crack for me to kind of pull, peel back the layers of of that dysfunctional
1: mm-hmm. relationship um Okay, let's talk a little Star Wars. How did the, how did Star Wars uh, land, how did these first become aware of the project Star Wars?
3: So this was a story that I learned when I got started making this. So I was excited about that. So so my dad had, um, so George's agent had, um, George had just done American Graffiti for Universal and they, I guess didn't want to release the film. They were unimpressed and they did not intend to release the film. And so they snuck a copy, which this is such a cool story that I heard in making, because I picture this whole thing like them pulling up, down in the car, get it in there, you know. But they snuck a copy of the film off a lot and, brought it to like a 7 a.m. screening It you know, got my dad there at Fox and ran it for him and he left it. So he went right to Universal and they said, I think it's terrific and, and I'll release it. Well then of course, as is often the case, they were like, well, wait a minute, if you want it, no, we're keeping it. But my dad, you know, again, you know, I'll harken back to him being just such a student of film was able, you know, in the same way that he was able to see Ridley Scott could make Alien after having watched this period movie, you know, um about you know that he'd made before that but was able to really see george's you know talent um and said you know okay come in for a meeting and this is another thing that i love so much too again once again because my dad was such a student of film i think that george and he were able to sit there i mean this was a conversation i would love to have been a fly on the wall for and as George was explaining it to my dad, he was using these references, you know? And so my dad was so aware of the references he was making that my dad could completely envision this story that he was telling. And so as cuckoo as it may have seemed, he was like, and that part will be like, you know, this movie. And my dad was like, all right, I got that. I got, you know, and he was able to visualize what George was describing um so I think that that was kind of the big thing and then I think in addition to that it also enabled my dad to um believe in what he was fighting for when the dailies were coming in because they were not good the acting wasn't great it was like really weird and sticks and things like this but again my dad was like (laughs) He believed, and he's never, I will say, he's never wavered in that. Like he, you know, he sort of jokes about, like the dailies were bad, the acting was bad, the sticks, blah, blah. But he never, I've never heard him say, and that was the moment that I was really worried about whether he could pull it off. Never once, he's never said that. He's always said, "Well, I mean, it was tough. I had to, you know, I had to really like convince them that he knew what he was doing and, you know, all of this. so I think like that is kind of it, that they were these two total film nerds and they just sat there and geeked out. And by the end, he was like, I'll do it.
1: <laughs> you know. Was he involved in the casting at all? In in any of the, you know, or looking at the casting or did George Lucas pick all the people?
3: I don't believe so. I think. And I could be totally wrong here, but I think there was, because my dad had a relationship with Alec Guinness from London. And I do believe that there was some conversation there of like, you know, Alec, trust me, it's going to be okay. Like, you know, come along. I, I think so. And I could be making that up, but I'm pretty sure that that was it because everybody else was kind of an unknown, you know, so for for my dad you know i think that the one person he probably just had to reassure was alec
1: and did he when they made the first cut do you have any recollection about how how long the initial cut was or any changes that were made in the story um i don't know
3: i don't actually know I, to be honest, I don't know, it, that's an interesting question, but I wish I thought of it. But no, I don't know if any changes were made. I know that the cut that they showed the studio, the studio hated. Mm. And and I don't know that they changed much after that, to be honest. I mean, there doesn't seem to be any story that any of them tell. It was more about, um, I never, I don't, I don't, I didn't hear any stories of like, you have to change this or you have to do this like i mean I, I and i've heard him tell stories like you know, about such and such movie had to come in an hour you know 30 minutes shorter or whatever but right. this the only thing was that he, he had to finish it you know was that they were going to pull the plug and george had to finish it I, but i i think that well i don't know you what I, do you oh, think yeah, ryan, ryan you're the quick, ryan no,
0: no I, had, <laughs> I had a quick I had a it's so interesting because uh you know he's he's quoted saying like he knew it was gonna be a hit right off the bat. And, I mean, Star Wars is a first for so many things. It's obviously, like, one of the biggest franchises, if not the biggest, right now in, like, pop culture. But I'm I'm a little more curious about uh, a lot of the technical aspects because it was so revolutionary when it comes to, like, these miniatures and what they were able to pull off uh, technically. And I'm just so curious. Did he ever mention what, like, maybe George pitched on like, yeah, we're going to have all these really small sets and we're going to be using all these different sound effects and uh, we're going to have, like, his voice is going to be ADR'd for Darth Vader. Was there any kind of technical aspect of the film that he maybe was unsure about or was he all in on that side too?
3: You know, I don't don't know that there was any conversation about it per se and my dad is not technical at all like he's he doesn't have a cell phone so like i imagine if there was any sort of you know discussion of the technicalities of it he probably went over his head um but again because he was such a film fan he obviously knew of and he'd been like behind the scenes he knew of what you people could pull off with the magic of filmmaking um so i think that but i know that there was like I, and again it's such an involved story but i know that there was like um you know, the, the the effects, eventually they were in Van Nuys, but they started somewhere, like it was growing, like the whole building, it was kind of happening. I don't think George had any idea what he was, that's the impression I got, what he was, what he was doing and how he was going to pull it off, you know, um, like they had some ideas and things like that. But I know that my dad was saying like first, maybe they were first up North and then they had to get like a hanger in Van Nuys or some kind of something like it just kept growing. Um, so, so yeah, I don't, I don't think um, other than him saying, like watching me acting without the technical stuff, like, um, you know, I, I don't think he weighed in too much on that. But he said he had to believe he was like, you just had to believe that George knew what he was doing, you know, and he, he talks about that. I think he says, and i just hope to God that George knew what he was doing. so
0: <laughs> He did. Wow, he really did.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he sure did. And how quickly. Did it, I mean, I remember when I was a kid and it was like a slow moving phenomenon. I was in the New York, I used to go to New York in the summer and I remember going to see a movie and across the street there was a line around the block and I said, what, what is that? And everyone was like, it's Star Wars, you know. <laughs> Wars. It became, you know, it's like a word of mouth phenomenon. And how quickly did your dad realize you know was it like an old movie where they come in with the receipts and they go yeah yeah." (laughs) you know what funny enough
3: um (laughs) i mean i think he knew i think there are a couple of stories but i know that when they went when they first premiered it and the ship came in the whole audience went crazy and my dad there's a story of my dad that my dad like was in tears, and he just knew, like, because he felt the power of what had just happened in this theater, and he was like, "This is going to be the biggest movie of all time." Yeah. So I, I, I know um, there was, there was that aspect of it. Um, yeah, so I think that, like, he, you know, he, he knew. Um, he knew, but George is very blunt. Like George was very like, yeah, I was, I was cutting the, you know, the other version and I didn't even know. And I looked out and I saw this big line. And I said, what are all those people standing there for? Uh, like, I, you know, I, he seemed not to realize, I guess, cause he'd been in the editing room for so long that it was going to be the hit. But I guess my dad believed it would be. And yeah. that moment of affirmation when the shit flew over and the audience went crazy, like he,
1: he, he pulled it off. He knew that they'd it's done a it. It's cool part of it. history. I, I mean, they're, you know, like Ryan was saying, I, I don't think we'll ever see again in our lifetime yeah. that the fan worship and it's just, you know, part of the whole culture of making movies and it lines around the block. Just how exciting, that feeling of ex- how exciting it was yeah. to wind up in.
3: I do remember my dad putting us in the car and driving us past the Abco and seeing the line and him pointing it out. And that, I mean, I was young. I was only four. So, Uh but I do remember these big things. Like suddenly my uncle had this, you know, Star Wars themed doorbell surprise (laughs) installed in our house, you know? And, you know, so like it was, and I just remember the phenomenon of we had a, R2-D2 cookie jar and my dad was driving us around to look at lines and there was a, a buzz yeah. around and, and I loved Star Wars too you know so I, I enjoyed it most of my dad's movies I wasn't that into because they were
1: you know much more mature uh, but that I was super into. Now I have a question you don't have to answer it's just I, I'm curious, since he's the producer of the very first Star Wars, does that mean he owns a piece of every Star Wars movie? No, he's-
3: uh-uh. He's not, because he was just a studio head. Uh, so, yeah, so no, it's he's not a producer of it. But I, I think, if I'm not mistaken, I think that the people that actually were the producers did, I think that's how George, I think I read this, you know, I think that's how George paid a lot of people, was in points. Right. Yeah, you know, because I know actually, I went with my dad for George's 70th birthday party and he, there was at Skywalker Ranch. And my dad pointed somebody out. I can't remember who it was, but he said, Oh, you know, that's somebody like George gave him a point, one point, And the
1: guy will never have to work again. Oh my God. <laughs> If we could all go back in time. Yeah. I know, right? I know. Oh boy, we have to wrap it up. But Joe, I I know you said at the top you're you're in the process of selling it, or you want to sell it, or how can people see this uh, terrific film?
4: So right? they can on on July seventh. They can see it on iTunes, on Amazon, any any digital platform that you go to. Um, that's when it will premiere, and uh, later on down the road, I hope to get it onto a cable channel as well, but that won't be until 2021, um, but, but on July 7th, it's available everywhere.
1: Oh, fantastic. I'm very,
4: very happy, very, very happy.
1: Yeah, it, well, it's a great film. Congratulations. Thank and... you so much. Thank you so much. It's been <laughs> such a pleasure talking to you.
4: Yeah, and I gotta say, you're, this podcast, I, I listen to it religiously, it's fantastic oh, you guys do a really you. really good job
1: thank you Definitely. it's a number of love and like I said your dad is uh, hes I mean not only made so many great films but again just being in show business he's a name that over the years I, I just heard again and again and again and again you know people refer would always say oh well Laddie we you know we, we were going to go sell it to Laddie and <laughs> In the highest echelons, I've I've he- heard your father's name so w- well deserved that he would get a documentary about about him, you know. And like I said, he just cuts such a suave, cool old school persona, you know.
3: I know. It's funny. Again, that's funny because I never would have seen him that way. Like, I thought my dad was the biggest dork. Of course, as every kid does. And I was always like, ugh. And he would tell me these things. And I was like, you are so lame, you know. And now, meanwhile, I'm looking back through these. I mean, what a cool era, too. The 70s, too. The clothes and everything, you know. And here he is, like, the hippest of them all.
1: the pictures alone in the movie are just they're so fantastic (laughs) but anyway well thank you so much guys for being on the show good luck with laddie i hope everybody sees it july 7th you said it'll be available so uh check it out and thank you uh, so much thanks for being with us and as we always end our show with my favorite phrase everybody's life is like a movie with a beginning a middle and an end." So. that's the end of our Alan Led, uh Jr. movie for today. So thanks, guys. Have a great you. day. You too.
3: Thank Bye. you. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.
4: thank you. From producers Maria Menounos, Kevin Undergaro, and the entire Popcorn Talk Network, we would like to thank you for tuning in. For questions or comments, be sure
2: to visit popcorntalk.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of the Popcorn Talk Network.